Um, it's a real pleasure to be here and to be with you and uh, to, to contribute to this series. Um, it's uh, intimidating to speak in a series that Os Guinness is a regular speaker in since he's so, such a remarkable, remarkable man and a great speaker. What I want to do today is I want to crib a bit from uh, my most recent book, Return of the Strong Gods, that came out in the fall, uh, to make a presentation to talk about the problems facing our country and which I think revolve around solidarity. There are two ways to approach this question of solidarity. One would be to approach it and talk about it, its roots in our biblical vision of politics. I do something of that in the book, Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society, but I want to turn the other direction and presuppose or, or remind you that as religious people, we are uniquely able to engage questions of solidarity. So we have a very important role to play, I believe, in the future of our country. Because what I, my presentation today will be that we're suffering from a crisis of solidarity in our country. So to, to start out, you know, there's kind of a paradox of our time, which is that the further away we get from 1945, the further we get from the horrors of Auschwitz, the greater the intensity of anti-fascism. It's a paradox. The farther away we get, the more intense the preoccupation of this, this was. It's kind of unimaginable we'd have an Antifa in, American, uh, in the streets of American cities um, uh, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and what have you. And it's also the case that the further we get from Jim Crow, the more intense anxieties are, or the more intense the imperatives of anti-discrimination become. Now, in my book, I diagnose this. I try to explain this paradox. The further away we get from some problems, the more present they seem to feel to us. That this is because in the post-war era, when I'm talking to young people, I have to remind them post-war means post-World War II. It shows you how far away we are now from these defining events, which still, I think, define our, our, our political culture in the West, not just in the United States. That the post-war consensus is a consensus in favor of openness. That the problems that we face in our society are primarily problems of over-consolidation, um, exclusion, uh, a kind of hard center, if you will, that well, is not open to the peripheries. And that this consensus led to a priority that was given to cultural deregulation, I would submit, especially after the 1960s. And that's kind of the center left defining feature, um, what I would call cultural deregulation, which goes under the rubric of inclusion. And then the defining feature of the center right, I would say, in our society is economic deregulation or economic openness. So we have a kind of cultural openness and economic openness. And these two, these two sides have increasingly fused together. It's more evident in the European context where someone like Emile Macron or Angela Merkel represent both ongoing further cultural deregulation and in, in both of their countries, a kind of moderate economic deregulation. I suppose it goes under the term neoliberalism, that sort of inchoate but seemingly indispensable term to describe the consensus, the elite consensus 
in the West, in the West. Ever greater personal freedom, ever greater economic freedom. And so I, what I would submit is that this project of openness, ever greater openness, has had the effect of dissolving, or to use the title of my talk, disintegrating our patterns of association, and it's led to a crisis of solidarity. Or to use the term that the late uh, Roger Scruton often appealed to, the we, the second person plural. The first person plural. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> the first person plural, the we. Um, that's a decline in the power of the we. What are the signs of this crisis? I think one sign is that the notion of citizenship, a very important we, is in question. Questions about borders are very much up in the air, as we know. Kind of, not only is it royal American politics, but it's the defining feature in European politics. Question of voting, who should vote? Should we limit the vote to citizens? The British Labor Party, one of its planks was to allow non-citizen residents in England to vote in English elections, in British elections. I think that, I think that we'll see the state of California accord the vote to uh, non-citizens um, in, the, in the coming decade for their, for their state elections. They can't do it in federal elections, but I think they'll do it in state elections. And then the question about welfare benefits. And again, I think California is at the forefront here of not only, not only do um, immigrants, legal immigrants get welfare benefits, but illegal immigrants also get uh, welfare benefits. So there's a question about citizenship, obviously, up in the air. I mean, what is it about us being together as American citizens? Why should that really matter, or does that matter? There's also a kind of an inner uh, decline in intergenerational solidarity. Questions about debt, federal debt. Questions about the sustainability of the entitlements system. And then, as a late baby boomer, I hate to admit this, but the suffocating dominance of the baby boomer generation uh, I really feel badly for um, uh, anybody who's under 60. Uh, must have been very difficult for your entire life. Populism is another sign. I mean, populism is basically the loss of solidarity between the leaders and the led. Populism, by definition, is when the, the, the many lose confidence in that, that the few who are running things really have their interests at heart. And so they rebel against uh, legitimacy or they... They reject the legitimacy of elites uh, to, to, um, to set, the, set the standards or set the goals for the country at, at large. And we see this loss of this mistrust is not just in the voting box, but it really goes both ways. So we had a, uh, the presidential, Republican presidential candidate in 2012 referred to very nearly half of the country as kind of loser takers, right, deadweight takers. And then four years later, the Democratic nominee for President of the United States referred to nearly half of the country as deplorables, as moral cretins. It's not a good sign when the people who aspire to run the country uh, um, denigrate, uh, um, you know, uh, 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 almost half the country. That's, that's not a good sign. It's a sign of a breakdown somewhere. Also, I think there's a, we, we have an increasingly globalized oligarchy isn't Davos meeting happening as already started? Uh, I think this is, this is a problem. 
And then also a sort of refusal on the part of, of many elites, especially younger elites, to sort of wave the flag and exercise the basic responsibilities of leadership, which is to renew the bonds of loyalty that unite us together. I think of that Apollo movie, which I think Neil Armstrong, when he lands on the moon, he doesn't have an American flag in the movie. So that says something about what those who purport to sort of lead us culturally um, are failing to do. But I would submit that this regime of openness, this center-right, center-left consensus of openness is failing. And this is part of the reason why um, we're in such a moment of political turmoil in our, in our country and why everybody's on edge. So everybody senses that something is, is, um, is amiss and that, uh, and that we're, we, we can't just keep on keeping on um, in, our, in, our old, in our old habits. What are these signs of, of failure? We have a declining middle class. So we now live in a time where they're either going up or they're going down. And uh, um, this, is very this is very destabilizing. I, I, um, a young friend works as a tech engineer in Austin, Texas. As I got to know him, uh, I asked about his family. He's one of four sons. His father's a steel worker in Gary, Indiana. Same wife, same house for 40 years. Uh, one of his other brothers is in finance, very successful, and his other two brothers have been in and out of jail and have illegitimate children. So here's a, a man and his wife who cannot pass on their way of life to their children. Their children either succeed or they fail. I mean, they have to succeed. But just being a kind of normal, hardworking American uh, with a sort of decent life, stable life, seems increasingly uh, beyond the grasp of, of people in 2020. Of course, wage stagnation, a lot have been written about that. Uh, I think we can look and say that the people who have been running our country failed in a China strategy. Uh, um, they promised that uh, if we make some economic concessions that eventually China will become a liberal democracy and function um, in, in, a, in our system. Uh, we failed in Iraq, squandered uh, our reputation for military hegemony in a way that um, will take a generation to recover, perhaps. Um, Multiculturalism, that this, this is, uh, it has heightened tensions um, and undermined solidarity in our country, and by and large, our leadership class has capitulated to it. And then, of course, some of these, uh, you know, declining life expectancy, deaths by despair, this is coming into the public conversation um, finally. Uh, also, declines in marriage, increase of out of wedlock births. And if you, if you go to the hospital, they take your blood pressure and pulse, right? These are the vital signs, they call them. If you look at the vital signs of American society, they, are not, um, they do not indicate health. I mean, declining life expectancy for the population as a whole is a bad sign. And then some populations of our society have seen dramatic declines in um, life expectancy. The voters obviously see the problem. Um, uh, that you can, that's why there's, we have populism. They see the problem and uh, not, they want to start going a different direction. You know, the, the time when it really kind of was driven home to me was at the 2016 Republican National Convention. 
uh, you know, Ted Cruz, Cruz gave a speech uh, before Trump gave his acceptance speech. And the Cruz speech was, it was, he must have used the word freedom a hundred times. I mean, it was, it was a kind of, uh, you know, hyped up adrenaline, adrenaline Reaganite speech. Freedom, 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 freedom. And then Trump gave his convention speech, and I don't think he used the word freedom a single time. And that really struck me. I thought when the Republican nominee for President of the United States gives an acceptance speech that does not use the word freedom, this means that the, Republic, the base of the Republican Party wants something different. That it wants, well, I don't know, maybe it wants solidarity, not freedom. And then, of course, as we look at the Democratic Party's, party's primaries, which are, well, and we'll see how they unfold this spring, but I think um, the Democratic Party will undergo the same agony of redefinition that the Republican Party uh, has been undergoing since 2016. So predictions uh, based on this assumption. So the, my assumption is, is that the Trump phenomenon, and now we're going to see with the de Democratic primary, is a function of voters who recognize that we are face a crisis of solidarity in our country. We're disintegrating. <coughs> we're not, no longer functioning well as a people. And that our ruling class is stuck in an old consensus that sees all the problems that we face as problems of in, uh, insufficient openness, uh, whether it's we don't have enough economic freedom, the kind of Republican Party talking points from the past, or we don't have enough cultural openness or personal freedom, that we're still kind of an oppressive society and that you know, people who think they're women can't use the bathrooms of their choice, and this is a great moral crisis in our land. And the voters, are, I think, are, are saying, actually, no, the, pr the problem is disintegration um, is, is the one we face. So if I'm right about this, then I, here's what I would predict. That something like, I mean, Oren Cass's book, The Once and Future Worker, lays out a case for high school educated worker-oriented economic policy, a solidarity, economic solidarity based around productive work. I think this will increasingly define the Republican Party's economic platform and that the Democratic Party's uh, platform will be, will be increasingly defined by what I would call solidarity of consumption. That we all get to consume together. And so free college is a consumption promise. Uh, obviously universal health care is a consumption promise, pro uh, promise. And I think the ultimate end point of this is universal basic income, which I think will become the Democratic Party's commitment, um, if not in this electoral cycle, uh, within the next uh, two electoral cycles. I think we'll see the left organizing around a promise that we're, I'm, we're gonna guarantee solidarity and consumption. Um, and I think the, I hope that the American right will unify around solidarity and productive work. We can talk about that in, in the, in the Q&A. I, I should also point out that I think, one reason I think this will happen is because universal basic income is the most conservative approach to the kinds of problems that are caused by globalization in the sense that it doesn't require you to change anything about our trade <coughs> or tax or, uh, or, or uh, policies. It simply redistributes <coughs> the vast wealth that is accumulated to the top 1% um, or 10% of society as, as a consequence of uh, the financialization and globalization of our economy rather than addressing it. So you can leave everything intact and then build your solidarity around, around reallocation of, of, of 
of the of the re, of the money to necessary to consume at the level of a first world a citizen. And that's kind of my sense of why the Democratic Party's inevitably going to go in this direction. And that's why it'll become the party of the billionaires, because the billionaires had the most investment in not changing the economic system as is currently configured. And they're, they're happy to pay a 10% additional surtax to keep everything intact. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, the Republican Party will probably become a party of um, middle class and working class people. So what do we do? How do we go forward from here? It seems to me if the crisis is a crisis of solidarity. I think one is we have to chasten our elite. We have to chasten um, our kind of blinded elite. Or maybe we have to somehow bring the oligarchy to heal. Uh, you know, I've made all, my, my friends always get mad at me when I make policy suggestions saying I'm a broken down theology professor, I have no business talking about things like tax policy, but what the heck. Um, I think the 2017 tax bill thankfully has a tax on supersized university endowments that needs to be developed and expanded, and maybe the money needs to be spent on doubling Pell Grants to young people who go to university in this, their state of residence as a way of breaking down the, the, the oligarchy's monopoly on talent, which I think is a real serious problem, increasingly a serious problem in our country. Uh, you know, if everybody has, you have to go to the global cities in order to, um, in order to be successful, that's not, a, that's not good for our country. I think a uh, cap on lifetime charitable deductions is important. I think we're going to have a serious problem in our country as this vast wealth from all these billionaires pours into just a few supersized foundations. It'll privatize policymaking in our country, and that, I think, will not be a good thing. Um, and so these are the kinds of things we need to start thinking about if we want to restore solidarity. We've got to bring the elite, if you will, back into the national community. <laughs> Uh, so that they don't have to have someone like Donald Trump be elected president before they wake up and realize that actually, yes, um, you know, people are dying from uh, heroin overdose at you know, unprecedented rates. I mean, that's, that's, that's a sign of a dysfunctional elite if they don't know what actually ails the country. Um, I think another area is this sort of Orrin Cass, I said, pro project of economic reform, organizing around a high school educated worker. Um, we need to get out of this college for everybody mentality. And free college is a disastrous idea. That's a giveaway to upper middle class people. Uh, in fact, our educational policy in the United States, we spend almost, I think, over 90% of all federal spending on economic, uh, educational uh, matters is oriented towards higher ed, which is effectively a subsidy for the richest people in the country. Um, we need to limit immigration uh, in order to allow for a digestion of record numbers of immigrants over the last generation. Four percent of Americans were not born in the United States in 1970. It's now 15 percent. Uh, I'm very pro-immigration. It's part of our great national tradition. But we're naive to imagine that there are no limits to what a country can uh, absorb and um, in order to, and still maintain a sense that we're all in this together, that a sense of solidarity. We need to be wise in this matter. Um, and I think here we also need to think about assimilation. This is where I think the CAS idea is important, that work 
is a very powerful instrument of assimilation. Um, it is what forces us together to work together on common projects, even if we're from all different backgrounds um, and, have, and have different cultural uh, values. So work is a great assimilator. Universal basic income, by contrast, I think will be a disaster because it will allow people to live in um, isolated enclaves and never have to engage uh, with, with, with people uh, in, this, in, the, in the workplace. I think a lot of European problems with Muslim assimilation stems from the fact that you can live in the Netherlands and Germany without working. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's, I think, um, that's a serious problem. I think we have to retrench globally um, in order to focus on restoring the social contract in our country so that we can have a firmer and renewed basis on which to exercise global leadership in the next generation. Um, I think we need pro-family and, and pro-nation policies. I think we can't take for granted uh, a, a commitment to the nation as uh, a fundamental good. Um, I think we, we, we can see this in elite higher education which orients itself more towards um, serving global concerns than, than the concerns of the nation. <clears throat> and I think also we probably need to re-engage the anti-discrimination regime that has grown up out of uh, the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s, which is a vastly more ex expansive and extensive now. We, we face a situation where the Supreme Court may decide that gender identity and sexual orientation are included in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And I think that will have the effect of, um, it leads to a, it leads to a um, solving social problems through a sort of winner-take-all litigation approach rather than having to work out our, how to live with each other in the deliberative process of political give and take. And so I, I think we need to readjust that regime and recognize that it's contributing now to our fragmentation and disintegration, even though it was passed in 1965 in order to actually enhance the solidarity that we share with each other. And then finally, to restore the rhetoric of solidarity and the rhetoric of uh, citizenship uh, in our public, uh, in our public uh, conversation, in our public discourse. We need to avoid the kind of pre-citizen descriptions, consumers. I mean, I think if you're here in Washington, D.C., leading our country, you should be worried, worried about the well-being of our citizens, the citizens of our country, and not eager to, uh, to serve the needs of the American consumer. A consumer is a pre-political um, uh, role, not a political role. And there's also the kind of post-political or the post-citizen um, this uh, way of talking about, and here uh, this, we find this a lot in the educational culture, global citizenship, which of course there is no entity f to which to be a citizen globally. Um, so it's, uh, it's, one of those, uh, 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 it's one of those imaginary uh, words that I think still be disguised as a, a post-citizenship sentiment. All right, conclusion. The greatest threat we face is that of a homeless society rather than the threats of a closed society or an intolerant society. And uh, a homeless society is a place where ordinary people, or I mean, not just ordinary people, I mean, uh, it's amazing, a lot of very 
prosperous, well-educated people I know also feel kind of homeless in the sense that they don't feel any place where, they, where they're exempt from this kind of relentless meritocratic competition for success 24-7. And that the way that they, um, they crack the whip over their children, um, warning them about how competitive uh, life is, uh, that's a kind of, I mean, home is where you're at rest, where you're at repose, where you can trust um, the fact that the people have to deal with you, whether you're competent or uh, high achiever or low achiever, whether you're, whether you're irascible or friendly. Um, and I think this is true for a nation as well. Um, that's one of the reasons that people cherish their citizenship, because it's, uh, it's something that, if, if one entitles them to be, uh, to be part of the community, they don't have to earn it. Um, and I think there's very little left in our society that we don't have to somehow earn. So restoring solidarity is our imperative. We need to avoid cop-outs like technological replacement of jobs or climate catastrophe or the inevitable um, um, foreign threats. And we need to buckle down as religious folks who I think are expert in the language of solidarity. And this is very much part of our imagination about social life, that we are here to serve each other and not simply to pursue our own private um, ends. And that we have a great deal to contribute in this imperative of our time, which I think will be the political challenge of the next generation, which is to restore solidarity to, to our country and restore our sense of national community. Thank you.